So Yahweh said to him, verse 7, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you the land of the possessions. But Abram said, O sovereign Yahweh, by what can I know that I am to possess it? So Abram's like, okay, but I still need something tangible. <laughs> okay? It's like Mark 9. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Yahweh said, take for me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So Abram took all these things for him and then cut them up in two and placed each on the opposite sides of the other. And he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of the prey came down to the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And you're like, what? This is a very blind. If you've ever killed an animal and like cleaned it, there's lots of blood. So he's taking all these animals and he's cutting them in half and he's laying one half of the animal on one side of the road and the other half of the animals on the other side of the road, which means the road is going to be completely filled with blood and you're going to walk between this. Now this is how treaties and covenants were made in the ancient world. If two kings came together and they decided they were going to make a treaty and there's usually a greater king and a lesser king. So obviously God is the greater king in this scenario, and Abram is the lesser king. And they're going to make a treaty with each other. Basically, this is how they do it. They would both offer animals. Now, if they were pretty equal to each other, they would both offer animals. If one is obviously greater than the other, then only the lesser king offers animals, or more animals than the greater king. So they would offer animals up, and they would cut them in half, and they would lay them on each side of the path, and then they would carry two items. One king would carry a flaming torch, and the other king would carry a fire pot, a smoking torch. And they would walk between the animals together, side by side, and they would recite their end of the covenant. I agreed to... And the other king would say, I agreed to... And at the end of the animals, they would say, and if in unison together, if I violate this covenant then may be done to me what has been done to these animals. Now, this is where we get the word cutting a covenant. Because they literally would cut animals. Now, that means if you violate the covenant, you would be killed for violation of the covenant. And if you were able to get away from that king who was chasing you down to kill you, most likely that king has made other alliances with other kings, and if one of those other kings found you, they would kill you and their loyalty to the covenant with that other king. So it made the world a very small place if you violate covenants. Today you just find a good lawyer and you're out of it. This is what God is saying. You know how incredible it is that God is binding himself to Abraham in such a way as saying, you can kill me if I violate the covenant? Now, I know that we're like, yeah, but you can't kill God. And like, and yes, he will never violate his agreement. But at the same time, still, God could have easily said, well, I don't, I don't lie. And you can't kill me. So this is just a waste of time. But God doesn't. Because God is relational. And God commits himself just as much as he expects us to commit ourselves, if more, more. And he steps down into creation and into a relationship with God, or sorry, Abraham, and he binds himself in such a way to Abraham saying, you can kill me if I violate this. Now, yes, theologically, that's impossible because you can't kill and he won't violate it. 
But theologically, that's also very demeaning of God. To even say that I would have the right to pull you into a covenant where I might actually entertain the idea that you could violate it and you should be killed for it. Now, I know that seems like so speculative and it's so beyond us, but at the same time, God is God. And the way that you treat him and talk about him is just as important as the way that you obey him. And that he would actually be willing to demean himself into a covenant where he actually entertains the idea that you can kill me for violating this is significant on a relational level. But he's going to bind himself to Abram. And Abram now, and here's where it really gets demeaning, Abram no longer says, I believe God can do this. Or, I expect God to do this because he promised it. Now he can go to God and say, you have to do this. Can you imagine going to God and saying that? And most likely Abram will not say that. But that's what God is doing. He's actually demeaning himself and lowering himself into a covenant where somebody can literally now say, you are responsible. You are expected. We demand this of you. That's significant. That the God of the universe will do that. Now, there's so many other things about God, especially when you get to Mount Sinai, that if you truly do fear God and love him, you will never say that. But at the same time, the fact that he's opening himself up to that is significant. So Abram brings out these animals. Now, what's interesting is that these animals are not the typical animals that you would use in a covenant making. These are sacrificial animals, the animals that you would sacrifice according to the law. So wait a minute. This covenant is not made with truly traditional covenant animals. These are made with sacrificial animals. And then these birds come down on it, and Abram's driving away, and you're like, okay, where every word is very precious, and the Bible leaves out, I mean, how many times have we learned? Like, the Bible leaves a lot of information now. You seriously wasted the time to describe Abraham shooting birds away? Like, which means it's incredibly significant. Well, the birds are birds of prey. And in poetry, and in the Psalms, and the prophets, the birds of prey always represent the nations. Every nation that is not Israel, the Gentiles. Because these birds are the kind of birds that are unclean and you're not allowed to eat and sacrifice, and they always symbolically represent the Gentiles, i.e. Acts chapter 10, when Peter has the vision of the Gentiles, which are the unclean animals on the blanket. So this means this, and the sacrificial animals always represent Israel, because Israel would transfer themselves to the animal, and the animal became Israel, and then the animal would die, so the animal, the Israel was substitutionary dying for their sins without really dying. So what God is now saying to you in a prophetic kind of way, because now we're entering into prophecy, and this is a prophecy that you're not used to. We're used to prophecy being like in 2024, this is going to happen. But prophecy is more typology, more symbology. So we're entering to prophecy. God is saying the animals are Israel and the Gentiles are going to come in and they're going to threaten the promises of God and try to destroy the promises of God. So that's what we got so far. Okay? So then we're told that he did this 
And when the sun went down, Abram fell into a sound sleep. That word sleep, a deep sleep, is only used right before a vision. A vision of prophecy. The last time we saw that, Adam fell into a deep sleep and was given a vision, a prophetic dream of the significance of a woman's connection to a man. So we know that Abram has just laid out Israel before him and he's driven away the non-covenantal people who want to destroy the promises and God brings him a vision in the midst of this. And God comes in the vision and prophesies. Now also that God surrounded himself in a darkness and fear overcame him. Now we don't really like using those words of God. God surrounded in darkness and fear comes around you. But that means something very mysterious is going to happen. Usually the word darkness is only connected to God when God is in his great mystery is coming. And he's going to begin to reveal a little bit of himself, but there's still going to be so many things that are hidden from us. So it's going to feel like God is mostly dark rather than light because we're actually going to just probably be more confused afterwards than we were. Like there's so many times you read the prophets and you're like, God, that actually confused me more than it gave me clarity. And prophecy tends to confuse more than clarity. So God says in this, know for certain your descendants will be strangers in a foreign country. So here's the bomb. I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to give you all this land. By the way, here's the land and oh yeah, you're not going to get it for a very long time. In fact, four generations. That's the small print. That would kind of crush you. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's like telling my kids we're going to go get ice cream. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, by the way, it's not going to happen until you graduate from college. <laughs> I'm still going to be faithful to my promise. <laughs> but it's going to be a long time. So you are going to be strangers in a foreign country. They will be enslaved. Oh, my gosh, God, are you going to make this worse? We're not going to be a great nation. We're going to be slaves. For 400 years, or the Bible says four generations. Now, don't take that literally. It wasn't exactly 400 years that they were slaves. They were in, in Egypt about 400 years, but their slavery was more like 250. Okay, And we don't have the exact numbers either. Because remember, the Bible's not interested in exact numbers. They don't date in exact numbers. They don't have clocks and calendars for that. So four generations is more appropriate. So that's a long time. So you're not going to get the land. It's going to be four generations. And oh, by the way, you're going to be enslaved for part of that. But afterwards, you will come out with the wealth of that nation. And I will bring this land to you, and it will finally and fully be yours. Not just then you get to live in it, Abraham, but it really belongs to somebody else. And not just because you're kind of wealthy, but you're going to come out with all the wealth of Egypt and you're going to possess this land and control it completely. So one thing that God's doing is he's, in, he's preparing them so that when they're in slavery, they can't say, God has abandoned us because God has told them this is going to happen. But it also gives them a clock to say, this won't last forever. It won't last forever. So God says, I'll bring you out of this. Now, remember that. Because he says, I will give you the wealth of the nations, or Egypt. So then when he, Moses comes along 400 years later, God says, 
you're going to go in and you're going to bring my people out and you're going to come back to this mountain with all the wealth of Egypt and a fulfillment of Genesis 15. And then on the night of the firstborn son dying, the next morning they get up and leave and God says, knock on all the Egyptians' door and ask for all their money. And they'll give it to you because they just want to. And it says they left with all the wealth of Egypt. So God fulfilled it. But notice that when Abram got the wealth of the enemy, what did he immediately do with that wealth? He tithed it. And this is what makes Israel so sin, so gross when we get later, because they were supposed to take all the wealth of Egypt, and then God was going to give them instructions for the tabernacle to build it with part of that wealth. But they ended up taking part of the wealth and melting it down into a golden calf. That's the significance of this whole phrase here. This is where it begins, and it ends in the golden calf. It ends in the golden calf. Now he tells you why. Why do we have to be enslaved for 400 years? Because the sin of the Amorites is not yet ripe. Well, what does that mean? He's going to go on and list 10 nations. This is the only time these 10 nations are ever listed. The other times it's 6 or 7 or 8, but never 10. This is the only time we get 10. These are the only 10 nations that they ever have permission to wipe out when they get to the the land of Israel. And he says it's because they're not yet sinful enough for you to take the land. What does that mean? God is a righteous and good God, which means he just doesn't just kick people out because he wants to put somebody else in. God does not evict people and say, you know what, there's these people that I really like. I want to give them a home. You're in the house. I don't really like you. Get out. This is now theirs. That's not how God operates. So the only way that they can really truly inherit the land as a nation of thousands of people is if the people who are currently living there are not there. But the only way that God can righteously and justly remove these people from the land is if they deserve to be removed from the land. Which means God is saying this. They have to be killed and removed for you to take the land. But they don't deserve that. So I can't do it. Which means you have to go somewhere else for a while. But in 400 years, they'll deserve it. That says something. It says this. We're going to learn that their sin is so bad that they're all involved in bestiality. They're all in child sacrifice. They're already doing all that stuff. They're doing things that Hollywood is not brave enough to show in movies yet. And God looks at them and says, but they don't deserve to be judged yet. Like, seriously? They got 400 more years. Have any of you ever been patient that long with any of your kids or other people's kids? Can you imagine an entire nation that sleeps with each other at church in order to turn the gods on so they can get blessed? And they sleep with animals and they sacrifice their children and they abort babies, and they just don't do it and know it's bad, but don't care. They do it, and they call it righteousness and say that the gods are being praised with it. And the entire culture thinks that way. And God says they don't deserve to be wiped out yet. That says how bad the time of the flood must have really been. But it also shows you how incredibly just and merciful God is that he's going to give them 400 more years. And in that time period, what is he going to give them? Prophets. Which then also shows you that when we come to the book of Joshua, how just God is in wiping them out, because we think that they probably should have been wiped out 400 years ago, 
and they've been given all these prophets, and Rahab admits with her own mouth that everybody knows who God is and what he can do and how he can bless people, and they still don't want to change from their ways. So this is why they can't take the land yet, because God is just, and it wouldn't be just to take the land from one and give it to the other yet. But why slavery? Because Israel is going to become the most powerful nation that's supposed to rule the entire world. And how many people want to spoil a little brat running your company who's being given everything without ever having to work for it? And who are the predominant majority of people in the world? Widows, poor, slaves. Not today in America, but today in the world and most certainly back then. The majority are foreigners, slaves, poor, widows. And this is why God's going to repeat over and over and over and over again. Take care of the poor. Take care of the widows. Take care of the foreigners. Because remember that you too were once foreigners and slaves and a land oppressed. Because people tend to be more sympathetic and empathetic to people when they've gone through the same suffering. You know, celebrities don't care about most people. Then one of their cousins or their brother or their sister dies of cancer, and all of a sudden they become these huge advocates for cancer. Well, stopping cancer. Right? Even our own lives. We don't become empathetic. We see all these children starving on television all the time. But then when we go over there and we meet one and we fall in love with them, then all of a sudden we become... Or when you yourself go through the loss of a spouse, all of a sudden you become very involved in other people who lose lost spouses. And so this is what God is doing. He's not crushing them because he's a cruel God. He's crushing them to give them a heart for the world that is predominantly crushed. And so he's a just God, and he's a God who uses suffering to bring character development and compassion to other people, as the whole book of 1 Peter makes that entire argument. And so this is what he's telling Abram. you got to wait. You've got to wait, because I use suffering to develop righteous people. And so he has this vision of God passing between the animals. But notice that Abram doesn't pass through, but God technically doesn't either. Because you can't come in the presence of a holy God if you're not truly 100% righteous. So what does he see? He sees a floating torch and floating smoke. And this is the covenant being made. But what it does is it represents God. Because when we get to the book of Exodus, God is going to appear to Moses as a burning bush with smoke coming out of him. He's going to appear to Israel as the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. The smoke and fire are symbols that ward off evil in the ancient world. And God is going to take those powerful symbols that are anti-evil and a symbol of covenants, and he's going to bring them into himself, and it's going to become his official symbol. And this is why we have a Christian school called the Shekinah Christian. Because it is literally becomes the image of God. Smoke and fire. Because these images are wards against evil, spiritual warfare, and these images are the most powerful physical symbols of covenants. And God pulls him himself and says, I am that. I will drive away all those things that seek to search and destroy your promises in the covenant. And I will become the ultimate covenant. And so what does God, Abram see? He sees God walking. Now, this does not make the covenant unconditional. 
Some people say, well, only God walked through the animals and therefore makes them conditional. That doesn't work. When we get to chapter 17, God says, if you obey me, then I'll fulfill the covenant. Well, that if-then language means that if you don't do it, then he won't do it. So God is making covenant. And if Abram doesn't honor his end of the covenant, obedience, then God doesn't have to honor his end. But we know God well enough that he will still honor it no matter what, because that's the kind of God he is. But he has every right not to honor the covenant if Abram doesn't. And Abram's not going to do it in the very next chapter. But the other thing it says to you this is this. This is the name Yahweh. Because what God is doing is he's walking among the animals. Who are the animals? Israel. And so what is God saying? I'm going to send you into slavery for 400 years because the sin of the Amorites is not yet ripe. But as I'm saying that, I'm walking literally in your midst of Israel. And your great prophet, Abram, will spring a whole bunch of other prophets who will protect the promises from those people in the world who seek to destroy them. I am with you. I walk among you. They do not have the name Yahweh yet, but they have the character Yahweh. And this is what God is saying. This is a prophecy. You're going to go to Egypt, and you're going to come back with the wealth. But this entire time, I walk among you. I am with you. I am with you. And this is why God won't build a tabernacle on a mountain. He'll build a tabernacle right in the middle of the camp with them. And this is why the book of Hebrews says that Jesus says, Behold, I stand in the midst of my brothers and sisters and call them mine. God is the only God that comes down and walks with you. And the covenant is not a great king standing above a lesser king, making a covenant demanding things. The covenant is made by a God who demeans himself into the earth and walks among Israel and makes him one with Israel and says, suffering's coming, but I am with you. I am with you. And at the end of it, I will give you. I will give you. And this is the covenant that God makes with them. And he says, and I will bring you out and I will give you a land where I'm going to literally put my name on it and I will dwell with you. This is the God of the Bible. This is the covenant-making God. And now Abram and God are bounded together. And that can be broken. But when we get to chapter 22, God is going to take this conditional covenant and he's going to make it unconditional. And no one will ever be able to break the covenant because God has made it unconditional. And this is what the cross is rooted in. I am with you. To the point where he becomes the actual Israel, the actual sacrifice animal, the actual person who will take the sins of the Amorites and punish them on us. So he becomes the cross, becomes all this. It becomes a protection of the promises. It becomes the God who's with you. It becomes the Israel. It becomes the sacrifice. It becomes the Amorites being punished. Because this is the beginning of the gospel. Does it make sense? Mm-hmm. Questions? So, Abe, the covenant, I mean, God gave Abram the land. Abram's supposed to worship God, and that's his part of the covenant? To obey him. To obey him. Because this, once again, in the big picture, is God restoring the garden. And so they've lost the Adamic covenant, 
So now he's replacing it with the Abrahamic covenant, the third covenant that God makes. And then he's going to give Abram land. And that land is then God's going to be able to actually walk with Abram and Israel in that land. And this is the beginning, baby steps, of God rebuilding the garden. That's the big picture. Don't forget that. As we look at all the details, my hope is to keep connecting themes and all this kind of stuff. And I want you to see this. We had to look at the stories, but I want you to see how these stories are all connecting together and then how it's fitting into that bigger picture of this is God restoring the garden. And it begins with first reestablishing that covenant that was lost in the garden. And then he can begin to add to that and add to that.